On this episode of The Jukebox, we sat down with Gina Borromeo, who is the curator of ancient art at the RISD Museum, the art museum affiliated with the Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island. Her connections to Brown University run deep, having earned her PhD from Brown before the Joukowsky Institute was even founded, and she continues to be a well-regarded member of the Joukowsky Institute's extended family. We spoke to her about the details of her job, like what considerations go into installing new exhibits or researching the provenance of an object, as well as more personal topics, like how she counsels her children who have budding careers in the arts. Whenever I wanted a place to, to just be quiet, I would seek out a Roman fountain, and there were so many of them, and listen to just the sounds of, of water. And I was always able to find a moment of quiet in this bustling, crazy city whenever I sat next to a fountain. And so for me, my, my experience of the ancient world is so closely tied to Respighi's Fountains of Rome. Can you just give us a little, um, you know, a brief uh, CV, if you will? You know, like, where did you grow up and um, where did you go to school and how did you become interested in um, the ancient world in general and the ancient Roman Mediterranean specifically? Wow, that's a great question. And it's it's actually, a ve- my answer is going to be very long. So I grew up in the Philippines. I moved to the United States when I, f- I was 15 And I went to college thinking that I would become a physician like my mother. My father was an engineer. My mother was a doctor. And science was all I knew, basically. So I took an intro to art history class my freshman year that I really enjoyed. And I don't know what it was about seeing works of art and projected so that they're 10 times the size of, you know, their their normal size, but it was really mesmerizing and, and sort of outside my realm of experience. And but I thought, oh, that was a that was a great thing to do. But I continued on with my science work and was pursuing a chemistry major in college. I went to Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. But by the time my junior year came along, I thought, you know, I think I need a semester break from from science, so I talked my parents into letting me go to Rome for my junior year, and that was just the end of it. Mm-hmm. I studied in Rome, and I went to classes that were all held on site, so I learned about Roman architecture, looking at the Arapakis and looking at the Column of Trajan and the Baths of Caracalla and the Roman Forum, and I was essentially a goner. You know, and I, I studied Baroque art in, in Saint Peter's and Renaissance art in the in the um, churches of Rome, and I, basically, the discipline of art history and archaeology came to life for me, and I came back and told my parents, "Sorry, <laughs> can't do chemistry anymore. I'm going to go do an art history major, in a year and a half," and so that's what I did, and I. Well, fell in love with with Roman art and ancient Roman art in particular, and I decided to do Rome because I wanted to be sure that 
whatever I did in my life would always put me in the city of Rome over and over and over again. Did finding this interest in your junior year of college, did that give you any sort of anxiety about, I don't know, being behind? Yes, big anxiety about being behind. But at that point, I hadn't really thought I would go to graduate school. I just thought, oh, well, art history is a good way to learn how to write, to learn how to think about objects rather than words critically. And I thought this is just a, a good way for me to to go forward and, you know, get a good degree in a, in a humanities field that would allow me to get a job after, after college. But my first year after I graduated, I actually taught sailing in, in Newport. And it was, um, it was a great year where I was outside all the time. But I realized I really needed to get back in the in the field and not in the field necessarily but go back to school and pursue what had so interested me in in college Mm -hmm. so yeah I was definitely behind for one thing um, I didn't have the ancient languages Mm -hmm. I didn't have Latin or Greek but I did have German which I had studied through high school and a little bit in college so I felt that at least with that behind my belt, I had one requirement out of the way, but all the rest was something I had to pick up in grad school. And I did that here at Brown. I, I did Greek and Latin here. I, um, in addition to my art history classes and archaeology classes, and because I was doing my degree in Roman art history, I did a lot of my coursework at the Tchaikovsky um, and back then, it was called the Center for Old World Archaeology and Art. Mm-hmm. So had you not taken that semester um, break from science, do you think you might have become a chemist, or would you have just sailed away into the sunset? Oh, my gosh. That was a great question. I wish I could have sailed away into the sunset. But I think in order to afford that life, I would have had to, gone, uh, to have gone to... Um, medical school, which was my first, mm-hmm. which was my first dream. And in fact, I took both the MCATs and the GREs after college or during college, and I actually did better on the MCATs. So I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> I I went where I had to work a little harder, but mm-hmm. it made me happier. So um, maybe I would have been a doctor like my mother and like my brother, but I think I'm probably happier doing what I'm doing. So was the um, academic job market, um, how did it treat you? Did you uh, always, were you always interested in museum work or were you interested in education generally? Or, you know, what was what was underpinning your, your job search? You know, uh, back when I was in graduate school at Brown, and this was in the mid-80s to the early 90s, we were... Um, Fortunately, I think, with the art history program, we were always 
made to be open to both the academic world and the museum world. At that point, I actually took a course uh, called the exhibition course in the art history program, where in your second year, you basically put on an exhibition. Uh, you applied to the NEA and the NEH for grants, and you, we as a class sent out loan requests, sent out you know insurance requests, and we basically did the exhibition planning from the beginning stages up to the very end where we produced a scholarly catalog. And this I did this under the direction of Sheila Bond. Um, wow. She was a young professor then. And she, we did a an exhibition called Classical Mythology in Medieval Art. So we borrowed objects from all over the country and we mounted this exhibition at the Bell Gallery at the List Arts Center. So all along, I, I felt that if if I were to go the museum route, I would have been perfectly happy. I actually worked in the college gallery at Wheaton College. But I have to admit that when I did finish my PhD, I only applied for academic jobs. And it was a very tough market in the early 90s. And I got interviews. Uh, I had applied from literally across the country, from Walla Walla, Washington to Savannah, Georgia. I got three interviews and in the end did not land a job. So I ended up volunteering at the Art Institute of Chicago and that's how I essentially got my first real experience in museums. And from there I applied for, for this job at RISD and actually got it and ended up half a block from where I went to school. <laughs> but I'm happy about that. That's really great. I So your um, PhD work was mostly focused on the Roman Mediterranean. Yes. And your position at the RISD Museum is curator of ancient art. Um, was that a challenge to um, have to curate um, stuff from all different ancient cultures? Yes, it was a challenge to go from just studying Rome and, you know, sort of Greece as well, because some of my um, exam topics, my prelim topics, were actually in, in Greek Hellenistic art. So at least I felt that I, I, I could cover Greece relatively well when I got this job. But Egypt and the Near East... Uh, they were a challenge for me, and I have to say they continue to be a challenge for me, but in a good way, because I think that this kind of job where I became curator of ancient art puts me in a situation where I continue to learn every day. And if truth be told, I'm doing more Egyptian art now than, than I do Roman, because the Egyptian reinstallation was the latest I did. So you were in charge of the Egyptian reinstallation, but also the Greek and Roman installation, and you changed how they were presented previously very drastically. So what was your um, ideology behind changing the exhibits, and how is it different than it was presented before? I did the Greek and Roman reinstallation in 2009, and my big uh, goal for that reinstallation is to make the the displays more understandable to to our publics. And actually, the Greek, 
Roman and Egyptian galleries are the most requested for tours in the RISD Museum. We have thousands of Rhode Island school children who come to the museum every year because the ancient world is part of everyone's curriculum. So I knew that if I served that audience, we would be doing a good job because it's essentially many Rhode Island children's first introduction to the museum is seeing the Greek and the Roman, and also the Egyptian galleries. So I wanted to make sure it was understandable to them. So if you actually walk through the galleries of Greek and Roman art in the museum, you'll notice that I've displayed things at a very low level. And um, and a lot of my colleagues say, oh, because that's, you know, you're you're installing it for yourself. You're so short. But no, that's not really true. I mean, I actually even sat in a wheelchair when I was installing the galleries to make sure that our displays of objects would be visible even to people in wheelchairs. So this accessibility issue is one that's very important to me. I wanted people to be able to see the the objects, no matter how how short they were or how close they were to the ground. But in the same way, accessibility also translated to the way I interpreted the objects because I wanted to keep the explanations as simple as possible, but also um, thematically installed so that they would make sense to people who were not experts in ancient art. So if you look through the Greek and Roman galleries, you'll notice uh, cases that are uh, that focus, for instance, on the Greek gods or everyday life in the Greek home or death and burial in ancient Greece or early Greek art. Th- these were ways that I thought we could pique the interest of, of the public more. Another aspect of that reinstallation that I was really passionate about and um, very committed to was focusing on this idea of exploring more what objects were made of and how they were made. And that's not just because I work in a school or in a museum that's associated with a school of art and design. And I think RISD students look at objects um, very much from the point of view of how was it made, how did ancient artists create works that communicate certain ideas. So I wanted to um, make the galleries interesting for them as well. But in the course of my job at RISD, I realized that a lot of people are interested in how things are made, especially for for cultures they're not so familiar with because it's a way of beginning to understand the object. So you may not know exactly what a symposium is, but if you notice that a, a, a kylix, for instance, is made of clay and you, you begin to think about it from the manufacturing point of view, I think it, it makes a whole lot more sense and it is a lot more interesting to the public. So I think, let me just say a very quick note about Egypt. I continued that same um, trajectory of exploring things materially in the Egypt galleries. But I also, um, for Egypt, let the strength of the collection dictate how I showed it. So you'll notice that we have one gallery devoted to materials and techniques in ancient Egypt and one that's devoted to burial, which is 
not a surprise to people who, who know about Egypt because most of the objects from the Rizzi Museum come from burial contexts. For these collections, did you acquire any new objects or are you still acquiring new objects for the museum? Because that's a hot debate in museum practices, whether you should buy new objects or whether you should just work with what you have. That's a great question, Ciara. I actually am the, the curator who acquires the least at the RISD Museum. And I have to say that before I took this job, I really thought long and hard about whether I could become a museum curator because I had to purchase objects as part of my job. Luckily, though, the directors at the RISD Museum have not kept me at... Um, or have not required me to build the collection as strategically or as, um, um, how should I say, as willingly as, as my colleagues in other departments have. So I do acquire, but very rarely, and I try to acquire objects that are that have history before 1970 and preferably even longer than that. So um, the last piece I acquired was an Etruscan cinerarium, and I acquired it in 2016. And I did a lot of research on who owned that object before, and I was able to establish that it was actually in an American collection from you know, way before 1970, so I felt that it was okay to purchase it. But I think that it's it's something we should really keep in mind, especially with what's happening today in the Mediterranean and particularly in, um, in Syria and Iraq, that we should be very careful. Museums should be very careful about acquiring, but um, the American... Association of Museum Directors and of Museum Curators have actually all fallen in line with the AIA requirements that um, we should not purchase anything without history back to 1970. And I'm quite happy to say that RISD has abided by all these guidelines. So the RISD Museum has an Egyptian mummy. And as I recall from my last visit, it's not very prominently displayed. Um, and I'm wondering if this was a conscious decision on your part. Yes, it was. I um, deliberately placed the mummy behind its case. And ideally, of course, the mummy would have been inside its case and the case closed. But we have found out from conservation treatment that had that had uh, been done on the case that were we to put the mummy back in the case, the the wood would then begin to crack and the, the case, the mummy case itself, the coffin would sustain damage because it's it's become very fragile over time and the wood has dried out and um, it really just couldn't hold the weight of the mummy. So uh, yes, I, um, I, I realize fully that it is, you know, a mummified person, and that it disturbs some of our our visitors, especially some young children, are actually shocked. I mean, I've seen some of them say, "Is that can't be a real body, can it?" And when the docent tells them that it is, I've seen some, you know, a range of reactions to 
wow, that's really fascinating to to some kids actually leaving in a hurry and just running down the hallway and saying, you know, that's really scary. So I think that... um, it does point up the idea of do do human remains belong in museums? And we are at the moment trying to deal with that very issue by creating more extensive labels and videos that explain that mummies were taken out of Egypt at a time when that was considered all right, although in today's world we would never do that. And we talked about um, in in these um, upcoming videos and labels, we talk about how a mummy that was buried in the site of Akmim made its way, you know, to Cairo and then through um, through some Egyptian collections to Providence, Rhode Island, because it's it's kind of an odd journey for for an object to take, and our um our goal now is to just be very transparent about how mummies got to America, how mummies left Egypt, and why we're making the decisions that we are making today uh, regarding their display. I have to tell you right now, though, that my plan is to put the mummy back in its case. And, and that might sound shocking because I've just said that by putting it back in there, it might damage the case. But in this particular instance, judging from the reactions of our visitors, I think we have to take their comfort. And um, the whole idea of um, human remains in museums, we have to think about what that means. And and for now, the plan is to put him back in his coffin, but to closely monitor the, the coffin to see if it actually does deteriorate over time. And if it does, we'll see what else we can do. But we're going to try to put Nesman back in his coffin. So you wear many hats um, between being a curator at RISD and teaching at RISD while also being a de facto mentor to a lot of students at Brown as well as um, doing tours for anybody who asks you, no matter when they ask you. So what's it like having so many parts of your life to juggle in an educator role while also um, having your own research? And how are they different from each other? I loved my job, I think, precisely for the job responsibilities that you you listed. And I um, I don't know what that says about me, whether that says I have a little bit of ADD and I don't know it. Um, I like having a lot of different things to do. So I think, though, that when I think about what I do, what holds all of my different responsibilities together is just a, a desire to teach. And another thing that is true of me is that I love interacting with people. And so teaching Brown or RISD students or having interns in my office from either school is just really fun for me. I, I learn a lot from my, my students because they ask very good questions about, about the objects and they keep really my outlook fresh on the collection because I've 
been here, I don't know, 22 years now. And a lot of the time I interact with people who are seeing things for the first time or who are coming to the collection with a particular, um, with the framework of their own disciplines. So I get to learn and explore my collection anew with, with these people. So I love that. And um, being a curator means being a teacher. And so when I teach, I try to bring in the object-centered um, philosophy I have as a curator into my teaching so that it becomes really a much more symbiotic uh, way to look at, to look at objects um, from the point of view of the, the physical object itself on one hand, something we see, something we can touch. And then you think about its context in antiquity, how it functioned in the everyday lives of ancient people. But then it's, you know, the third part of my job is trying to focus on it in its museum context, where it it also takes on um, a more elevated status in, in people's mind, which I, I tend not to think about my objects that way. I, I never think of them as art objects. But because they're housed in a museum of art, that's how people tend to look at them, which is why I think I put a lot of care into producing contextual information because they're not really art like other works of art in the RISD Museum are. I think that gets lost on a lot of people. Um, when they see objects in museums, they uh, don't often know how common that type of artifact is. Whereas uh, the people who study these things know that um, they tend to know um, what things are a dime a dozen and which things are, are way more rare. Um, but, you know, that's an interesting question in and of itself, whether rarity should dictate um, prominence in a museum. No, that, you know, that's a very good point, because I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people come to our museum and and look at an object, maybe a, uh, a work of glass from third century Roman Empire, and they think, oh my gosh, that's so such a beautiful, rare object. But I think that that's purely because it's, it's in its own case and it's well lit. But when you realize that, you know, it was probably an object that was used to hold fish oil or... <laughs> or something else that wasn't very glamorous, you realize it's an everyday object. But, it, you know, RISD was formed to be an encyclopedic collection mm -hmm. for, for students who were studying art and design. And so the early leaders of the museum sought to purchase all sorts of objects that are, that would be of interest to to our community of designers. And I think that the utilitarian purpose of a lot of our objects, and as you say, the dime a dozen quality of it is actually very interesting to our up and coming designers who themselves will be creating those works of art for, for us and for future generations. Mm -hmm. So it's good for them to study from these objects, but I should actually probably make clear to them that you know, these are, some of them are a dime a dozen and not the rare work of art that they might think it is. Right. And I think my philosophy regarding how to, how to attract people to, to this field is not to underestimate the, the 
curiosity or the intelligence of these young people. And so we just put information out there. And and I think we began with leading questions about certain works of art, if I remember correctly. But I think we, we have to realize that they are coming from already a very curious place um, in that they interact with objects every day. So I think... Um, and what they're looking at is actually an object as well, but they just need to perhaps find a parallel to something that they have in their everyday lives. So when I talk to young people, when I talk to my sons and I drag them throughout museums everywhere, I always say, well, that's just like, you know, that's like your mug. That's what the Greeks used every day. And, um, and this is like, dad's wine cup or this is this is a, a plate that they serve their their food in every day so i think if you can draw parallels to today's world and if you just trust that they are going to be curious enough if if they encounter information that makes sense to them that they can relate to then the spark of of wonder is ignited both of your sons are, um, one's an undergrad at Vassar and one's still in high school, and they're both very artistic and going for arts degrees. And so what do you tell them about the skills they're going to learn and how they're going to be able to market them after graduation? Because it's easy to say, like, oh, you can use this for something else, but when it's, like, your own sons, like, how do you translate that philosophy? Wow, Ciara. <laughs> Nothing like asking me a really hard question. <laughs> but uh, so my oldest son, Theo, has just declared an art history major and is off to St. Petersburg in Russia to study at the Hermitage. And I think to myself, wow, what an opportunity. And um, and he says to me, Mom, with a, with a BA, can I become a curator? And I have to say, no, you have to go get a PhD. And he said, Ugh, no, more school. And I, I say, yes, more school. So I honestly believe in, in watching him, in, in, in visiting museums with him, that he is happy doing what he's doing. This kid outlasted me at the Met by, by a lot. He <laughs> has museum stamina. Yeah. And Every chance he gets, he's he's in a museum, so I know he loves it. I'm not going to dissuade him from doing it. I'm just crossing my fingers that he actually gets a job in it. But I also know, and he has told me himself that, you know, if he if he doesn't get a job in art history, he's going to want to do a job writing, somehow writing. So that will be. I think that'll be okay. No, so now for my other son, the younger one, who wants to design objects, he wants to become an industrial designer. Once again, my husband and I are very supportive of it because we know this is what he wants to do. He's very happy doing this. And honestly, I can't see him in a college situation. I can't see him enjoying that as much as he will enjoy making objects because he has been taking things apart in our house since he was three years old and putting them together in new and interesting ways. So um, I do tell my children, and 
And maybe other parents think I'm being totally impractical, but I tell them to follow their interests, and and I just hope for the best. So does the RISD Museum or you uh, as an individual have a web presence or um, somewhere that people who are interested in the museum and its collections can, can follow what's going on? Yes, the RISD Museum can be found on Twitter and Instagram and on a wonderful website that we are currently doing, redoing, and it is RISDmuseum.org. You'll see our programs there bios and all the the curators, short descriptions of ongoing exhibitions, and very soon also our collection will be online and searchable.